All right, hey, tonight we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3, uh, Gentry and Rama. Are y'all cool if I preach tonight? Is that cool? Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> Sawyer's like, no, I'm walking out. <laughs> Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 is where we're going to be at tonight. If you weren't with us last week, we started a new series called He Is... Um, spending four weeks looking at this burning bush moment um, where God reveals himself to Moses speaking through a burning bush. It's a crazy moment in scripture, but it teaches us a lot about who God is based off of what he says about himself. And so we want to take this four weeks to look at who God says that he is um, because at fall retreat, I'm going to get to preach through three sessions for us um, on who God says that we are. And so we're going to dive into that in fall retreat, hoping that we come out on the other side with this big picture of some characteristics of God and who he um, sees us as and, and the roles in which we play in that relationship. And so, um, which by the way, in all that, uh, I told uh, Taylor this week as we were sitting down and y'all fools are always talking mess about my hair and my beard, which is rude and disrespectful. And so here, it, you, don't, you don't love when I'm just like, oh, just like, it's like a Pantene commercial. It's amazing. Um, here's the deal. I know, that was emotional for me, too. It was incredible. Uh, here's the deal that I made. I said, hey, look, if 120 people go to fall retreat, I'll cut my hair back to normal person lengths. Um, Haley won't let me shave it off, which is a bummer, because I do miss those days. Those, that was pretty great. Uh, and then if we have 150, I said that I would shave the beard off and go back to year one lane uh, when I didn't have a beard. I know. Some of you don't even have memories of me without a beard. And so that's the deal. If we uh, see that happen before retreat, we had like the, a record number of first day registrations with like 60 plus registrations on the first day. So it's really easy. Just invite one person to fall retreat and I'll look like a human again. But if not, I'm riding this one out until Emory is in high school. So <laughs> it is what it is, man. Uh, Exodus chapter three, looking at some characteristics of God. I'm gonna pray for us and then we can jump in. Is that cool? Deal? Yes? We still interact in this room, okay? This isn't the 10.30 service on Sunday mornings. My goodness, y'all are killing me, killing me. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful um, for this moment where you reveal yourself to Moses and that it teaches us about who you are today. God, we're thankful that it's gonna teach us something um, about you that changes our lives, changes the way that we see you, changes the way that we respond to you, changes the way that we cry out to you. And God, it won't just change how we relate to you, it's going to change how we relate to others. And so, uh, as Ross reminded us this morning, if there's anything in us that is wrong, may you change our mind. That we would see things in a different way. That you would continue to convert our thoughts um, into the way of Jesus. And Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. So here's the deal. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Lane. I'm the family discipleship pastor up here. And sometimes you may see my three-year-old and my one-year-old running around First Baptist with me. Emery is getting way too comfortable. I've been hanging out with some of you pastor's kids uh, for a while. And I'm starting to see you in my kid. And that is absolutely terrifying. Um, but... I've got these two uh, little girls who are amazing and wonderful and gifts from God and also terrorists, okay? They are tiny little monsters, but I love them dearly. Now, here's the deal. Um, having a three-year-old and a one-year-old, like, you guys, if you're being knuckleheads, 
I can kind of call you out. We can banter. There are things that sar like sarcasm that exist. I can correct you. We can think logically. None of those things exist for my children. Um, they only deal in emotions, in really big emotions, and usually way outside of the bounds of where they need to be. Some of y'all are watching to see if I'm going to trip on that cable. I probably will. I'm just letting you know. This is the way it's going to be. Um, but that, like, that's how they live. And so you can come in my house, I mean, literally this afternoon, it felt like there was an hour straight of just them taking turns, screaming and crying. Um, now, Emery, it's like 50-50. Sometimes it's legit, and sometimes it's like, I'm about to manipulate the mess out of you. Nora, 100% of the time, if she's screaming or crying, she has something that we've got to step in. Like, she really wants us to solve an issue in her life, okay? Now, here's the problem. When Nora's screaming or crying, it is almost always because of Emery, okay? Because Emery thinks that Nora is like a tiny doll, like she wants to play with her. Nora's walking now, and so she tries to walk with her places, but she's like a, just a little weeble wobble, and so it's just dragging her places. Um, they love to wrestle like boys, and Emery just beats the crap out of her. I mean, it is brutal. And she's like, look, we're playing, we're playing tickle, and Nora's like, please save me! She doesn't have those words, so it just comes out like, Aah! and that's, much sadder. Um, I mean, it is, it is a, just craziness in my house all the time. Now, here's the deal. On Fridays um, in my house, I get Fridays off, so I'm usually not in the office unless it's like fall retreat or something else is going on. And so I get to be at home with my girls. Since I'm working a lot of Sunday, I don't really get that time on Sundays. Um, and so on Fridays, I get to be at home with Emery and Nora. Haley goes. She works for the school. And so the only goal on Fridays... Like when Haley's at home with the girls, she's got like, we're going to teach them the letter E today. We're going to learn. There's arts and crafts. There's all these things. My goal on dad day is just to keep the children alive. <laughs> because if Haley comes home and one of them is not, I also will not be. Our house will be cut in half immediately from four to two very quickly. Okay? And so I know. It's just super depressing, Bethany. And we get in there. And when we're in these moments... There will be these moments where, where Emery's kind of beating up on Nora and all this other stuff. Now, then there are also moments that aren't necessarily malicious, but are actually much worse. So, if you were to come into my house in Greg Ranch, you'd come in, and we have one of those refrigerators with a freezer is at the bottom. It's one of the big bottom drawers where things are just piled up and also go missing for forever. You're like, and frozen things, you never throw them out because you're like, I don't know, it'll be good when Emery's in high school. We use it at a graduation party, whatever. And so we have uh, chicken nuggets regularly because it's the only thing that my kids will eat. And so uh, lunchtime comes around. We've come in from outside, and I go over to the freezer door. I open it up. I pull out the chicken nuggets, and I go over to the air fryer because we're proper millennials, and I'm getting ready to make these chicken nuggets for my kids. Now, Haley and I have a really terrible problem of when we open a refrigerator door or we open a freezer door, we leave it open. It's just what happens. Like, we're trying to move quickly. Usually, I'm, like, grabbing a kid. I wish I had, like, a third arm somewhere collecting people in the kitchen. And so I grab these, and I go to the air fryer, and I go to put them in, and Nora loves being by the refrigerator, especially when the freezer door is open, because it is just her height to where she can kind of pull herself up and kind of shimmy around it. Have you ever seen, like, an action movie where someone comes out of the window and they're shimmying up against the wall to the next window? That's Nora and the freezer door, okay? Uh, that's how they make friends, right there. Now, Emery is in this terrible habit because she watches her dad, and her dad is teaching her terrible things. Um, and... 
And this one, honestly, of all the things I could teach her, not that bad, but it really backfired on me. So in my house, I am like OCD about picking up. I just, everything, I just like walk in tonight, I will go home. And again, the children will have made a mess and Haley will be tired, rightfully so. And I'll be like, I cannot sleep until every inch of this house. And so I'm just like picking up Barbies and princess dolls and stuffed animals and like throwing them in buckets and throwing the buckets in rooms and closing the doors to hide the buckets to make it look clean, but it's not really clean. You guys know the game. And so uh, in that, I close, like anytime a door is open, I close that bad boy. I don't want to see what's in there. If, it's, if the door's closed, then whatever terrible thing is happening, it doesn't exist in my world. So what Emery has learned is to close every open door in our house. Now, if you've been tracking with the story, you're beginning to see where this is going. So Haley sometimes will be making lunch in the morning. She'll leave all the refrigerator doors open, and I'll come by and be like, oh, and close the door. And that's who I am as a dad, okay? Now, I'm at the air fryer. Chicken nuggets are going in. Freezer door is open, Nora is shimmying around, hand is right up against the freezer where the door might close, and I just hear this like little pitter-pattering of three-year-old steps go <laughs> boom! And I immediately was like, and Nora's dead. I was like, oh my goodness! And I turn around and I just see Nora right there, freezer door on hand go, ah! and I was like, one of the children died and so I'm gonna die. Like it was terrible. Now, if you got to experience that entire moment, you would see the worst of your family discipleship pastor. I mean, you just would. It would be a bad moment for all of us. But if you were to walk in and I saw that moment, and I just looked over and said, really, Nora? Rub some dirt on it, shake it off, and walk it out. You can't crawl it out. Walk, crawl, shimmy the pain away, one-year-old. You would be sitting in there on my couch. You're like, you're a monster. What is wrong with you? Like, you, you'd be like who do I call? Everybody. You'd be like, All right, I'm calling Ross. I'm calling the whole pastoral staff, police officers, CP. Like, you're just like the list of people that you'd be ready to report me to in that moment. You'd be like, I'm done. Because that would be terrible parenting. Right, like yes, as you get older, there's some growth, there's some things, but when you've got a one-year-old broken hand and a screaming of like, dad, please rescue me, the natural, normal human response is to go over, pick her up, and rescue her from that moment. It is to see her and her crying out and to go, oh, hey, 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 I can take care of it. And to walk off, Emery's having a meltdown because she's afraid she's gonna get in trouble. She didn't, it wasn't her fault. She was just doing what she thought she was supposed to do. I won that parenting moment. It's the only one I won last week. <laughs> that would be the normal response, right? Now, we talk about that because where we're going to be at in Exodus 3 and, and what we're talking through and some of our moments, man, I did it again. You know what I did, Caroline. Where's my clicker? Yeah, just track with me. It's the next one. I was going to see if I could find it, but I decided against it. That's just for you. But we think when we begin to believe, think about God, right, this God that we said we've put upstairs, we've put distant, um, he's out of sight, he's out of mind, is that when we get into our moments of distress and pain and difficulty, there are two kind of trains of thought that would begin to relate us to God. We either think that he doesn't see us at all. 
Like God doesn't see my pain. He doesn't see my struggle. He doesn't see my issue. He doesn't see what's falling apart at home. He doesn't see that I'm hurting because of what I just went through in the last few months. He doesn't see any of those things. Or um, what I would say, it says at best, but I think it's even worse. We think that he doesn't see us and he, or that he does see us and he doesn't care. Then we go, okay, yeah, sure, God sees, but he's busy doing other things. He's busy dealing in war and famine and all of these other struggles. Like, he doesn't care that, that my parents are just fighting all the time at home. He doesn't care that I just got broken up with. He doesn't care that my friends don't talk to me anymore. He doesn't care about any of these things. And so he's a God that sees us, but he won't rescue us from our struggle. He won't rescue us from our pain. He won't rescue us from our present darkness. Those are kind of the two trains of thought that we can often, oftentimes relate to God. Here's how we know that we do this is because when we go through our struggle, then we don't go to God. We've been walking with Jesus for years. We're like, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We know all the right things. We can quote John 3:16 with Ross while he's on stage in the morning. And then you go, man, are you going through your struggle? Yeah, I'm going through it. Have you cried out to God? Absolutely not. And so if that is the case, if that is our present state, then this has to be what we believe about God. Like there's nothing else. Or even if we were to sit there and go, man, do you believe that God cares about you and wants to help you out and he wants to enter into your mess? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. But then you never cry out to him? That just makes you crazy. And so what we communicate is, man, we just don't even think that God sees us. Or if he does, he just doesn't care. And this is actually the struggle of the Israelite people. This moment that we enter to in Exodus chapter three, we are post a moment in scripture um, where there's a man called Abraham and God promises him uh, that he is going to have many, 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 many children. He tells him to count the stars. He can't, tells him to count the sand. He can't, he's like, this is how big the, your nation is going to be starting with Father Abraham. He had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. And we see this moment, and so there's this entire people group that believes that they are the people of God, that they are a nation that is the example for God, and yet they're living under slavery to the Egyptian people. Can you imagine how difficult that would make belief? If you believe that your God is the God and he is the only God and of all of the Egyptian gods, none of theirs are real and none of theirs work and yet you are a slave to those people who have false gods. That's a difficult situation. And so as you're working every day building all of the things for the Egyptians and being beaten by the Egyptians and being, your kids are being murdered by the Egyptians, as you're living in that state of oppression, don't you think that you would begin to doubt your God? Don't you think that you would begin to go, man, maybe he doesn't see us. Or maybe he just doesn't care. And you would fight every single day from the moment you woke, woke up to the moment that you went to bed with this already, this already this beginning of a rich history of being the people of God, of these stories, of these stories of who God is in Abraham and Isaac and all the people that are listed from last week of who God is the God of, and then you would begin to wonder, is he the God of me? And if he is, what kind of God doesn't see this and do something about it? And we can kind of begin to live in that space too as we begin to look at the world and we go, what kind of God doesn't see this and do something about it? Look at the mess of our world. Look at the struggle. Look at the fighting. Look at the division. Look at the separation. Look at the racism. Look at the sexism. Look at the way that people talk online. Look at the way that people treat each other in schools. 
Look at my friend's relationships falling apart. What kind of God sees all of these things and doesn't do anything? And man, if you don't feel that way, don't worry, because I feel that way for all of us. It's a struggle. And yet for you and I, we're still not slaves. And so here you are, the people of God, every day, hearing the stories of Abraham, hearing the stories about how you're, you're going to be the people of God, hearing the promises of God and wondering, but does he even see us? Has he forgotten about us? I mean, I know that we can feel that way too, those of us that grew up in the church and we grew up knowing God, or maybe we didn't and, and we just grew up with the southern belief of God and we go, does he see me? And does he care? Well, here's what God tells Moses in uh, verse 7. It says, and then the Lord said, remember he just said that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, that I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors and I know about their sufferings. There in the first verse, just pause real quick. In the first verse, we just see that God has seen their misery, he's heard them crying out, and he knows what is going on. So what happens in verse eight is very important. Because if I know your mess, and I go, hey, I see that you're hurting. I know that you're hurting. I've heard you talk about how you are hurting. And then I look you dead in the eye, and I can do something about it. We're not talking about if I'm powerless to do anything about it. I have all the power of the world to do something about it. And I go, and I don't give a rip. Buckle up, buddy. It's going to get harder. That person sucks. That's a nightmare of a situation. So what he says in verse 8 really matters from what he says in verse 7. And so we jump into verse 8, and it says this, And I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And so because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God sees it, hears it, knows it, and says, so I will rescue them. So I will rescue them. So I'm going to do something about it because they have cried out day after day after day after day after day. I see it fit in my grand scheme of rescue and what I am trying to do to enter into this present moment to rescue them. That's huge, y'all. That the, the overarching characteristic of God that is hugely important to us is that he sees and that he intervenes. That we, that we know, love, and serve a God who sees us in our distress and wants to enter into it and do something about it. Now, here's what's get, what gets difficult. It's not always in the time that we want it to be. It's not always when we want it to be. We just said we have a people who cried out day after day after day after day and waited until God saw it fit that in this present moment he was going to enter into it with Moses. They were in slavery long before Moses was born. 
And God waits and waits and waits until Moses is born, until Moses grows up in Egyptian royalty, until Moses murders someone, until Moses flees into the wilderness, until Moses has an entire life to enter into that moment and go, let's begin. And that can be frustrating. I'm not gonna sit here and be like, so yeah, man, like just trust God, like it's super easy. No, that's called a lie. It's difficult and it's frustrating and my tiny little pea of a brain cannot understand it and that is the goodness of God. That somehow in this whole thing, he orchestrates it to work the way that he needs it to work with the people that he needs to do it in order to tell the story that he needs to tell in order that it would point to him as the seer and rescuer because that's who he is. And I don't know why and I'm not going to sit here and pretend to explain to you that I know how or all the details and be like, because God is just doing this and he's all these things. No. But I do know that he sees and that he intervenes, that he's coming to perform a rescue, that he's coming to do something about it. Y'all, and this is, this is hugely important. He doesn't, when he rescues them, he doesn't just pull them out of something. He moves them to something. He's not just pulling them out of Egypt. He's going to take them to the promised land, what is going to be the physical, geographical location of the nation that he has promised them to be. And he begins to paint a picture of how much better it is than where they're at now. He says, I'm going to take you from this present moment that feels like hell on earth, and I'm going to take you somewhere else. It's dark now, but it's about to be bright. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to enter into it. Y'all, I know that some of you are going through it. You think I don't know that? In all of the love that I've had for you and cared about you in all these years, and the little bit that I've been able to do something, don't you think that a God who loves you more doesn't see that, knows that, and cares? And he enters in and he says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to take you to a better place. And I want to tell you, man, God sees you and he wants to rescue you. I don't know when. I wish and pray to God every day it was now. I just know that he will. And he's taking you something better, to something better. That's a beautiful rescue. And here's the good news. Our role in it is not to try to rescue yourself. It's just to cry out to God. <laughs> it says, because their cries have reached me. Because their cries have reached me, I will come down and rescue them. And he comes down to rescue. He leaves his throne to come and meddle in the affairs of men. When's the last time in the middle of all your mess that you just took the time to cry out to God? And was it important enough to do it day after day after day after day? And not to make light of things, I'm not just talking about we're really good at like, oh man, I was crying out to him to get accepted to this school or, or whatever it is. No, I'm talking about crying out to God in the midst of your darkness and your suffering and your pain and your oppression. And here's the deal. Oppression is a really difficult word because as far as I know, None of you are slaves. You have very few household chores. The illustration that we get from this Exodus moment all the way throughout scripture is that the thing that oppresses us is our own sin. 
that the weight of our addiction, our need for acceptance, our comparison to one another, our gossip issues, our desire to be God, that it hangs over us as a heavyweight and it is what oppresses us and it is what God wants to free us from. When's the last time you cried out to God to free you from your sin? We cry out for a lot of other things, but when is the last time that you got honest with yourself and you ask God to search you and to find your own sin and say, God, find it, free me from it. Give me another way. Rescue me from this. From my addiction, from the way that I look at other people, from the struggle on my relationship, from the way that I talk to my parents, God, rescue me from it. 